Little Johnny is born an innocent babe, feels an alien orphan in a strange land, and ventures out into the world to seek a sense of identity and purpose. Little Johnny is not so little anymore, he's stuck somewhere in the middle, he's beginning to question his life choices. Did he choose his identity, or was he just following a script? One laid out by society, parents, authority figures and so on. He hands in his notice, shaves his hair into a mohawk, and starts living life on the edge. He's experiencing that magical phase known as the midlife crisis. At the end of Psychonauts 2, Augustus is left to perpetually ponder his existence while stood on a cliff edge, making this not so much a cliffhanger as a cliffstander. He's rethinking his own story, his own myth. The midlife transition is aided by the archetypes of destroyer and creator. Together they help us let go of the identities we spent half our lives creating. Typically these identities are formed by scripts fed to us by parental figures. The script tells us what we can do. More importantly, it tells us what we cannot do. Make a script too restrictive and the subject is more likely to rebel. A child might run away from home. A teenager might lose his trust in the world, start hating on the man. For the adult who has lived his entire life according to the rules to no avail, midlife presents a beautiful oasis, an opportunity to turn one's life around, a chance to flip the script. The script doesn't tell the whole truth. A fairy tale might warn you to stay out of the forest, lest you run into a child-eaten monster. Except the actual monster is not as hideous as the story makes out. How did you get in here? Many of these scripts serve, or at least seem to serve, a survival purpose. Issues occur when we absorb their lessons so deeply as a child that we find them difficult to escape in our adult years. The orphan hero grows up feeling trapped. It's not just his surroundings that restrict him, it's his story too. If you're one of the lucky few to be born into riches, then you'll likely wake up feeling a king or a pampered cat. The whole world's a playground, and its people merely playthings. But for the poor orphan kid, the reality is much starker. You're wearing rags, people treating you like scraps, you were subject living according to someone else's rules, someone else's script. Born into a confining myth, the orphan may want to reinterpret what their myth could mean to them. Often a new myth may emerge and escape his fantasies. These counter-myths, like dreams, have a wish-fulfillment quality. It could be the desire to leave home and seek a life of grand adventure. However, this new myth is childish. The ultimate myth is that which synthesizes the old with the new. From childhood to fatherhood, Augustus has lived within the rules of his confining myth. Worse, he has imposed these rules upon his children. But while Vaz sought to escape the myth at an early age, Augustus has been living in its shadow his whole life, at least until he reached the edge. When thinking about Augustus' future, it's worth thinking about his past. His new myth will likely be a reaction to his old one. The creatures will step out of the basement. That which Augustus has been suppressing for so long, is set to take control. In the story of Sleeping Beauty, a princess is cursed to sleep a hundred years by a wicked fairy godmother. She's cursed for a single petty reason. The evil fairy was not invited to the christening party. In the Grimm's version, there weren't enough plates to accommodate the 13th godmother. In Perrault's version, the godmother was thought to be long dead. In psychological terms, the story tells a simple message. The things that own us are the things we're not conscious of. The kingdom can't be whole until that shadow thing is properly integrated, whether it be a forgotten fairy or a forgotten archetype. This cautionary message appears in Jung's teachings too. Both the conscious and unconscious must be allowed to have their say. The unconscious cannot be swallowed, nor can it be suppressed. Jung writes, 
Conscious and unconscious do not make a whole when one of them is suppressed and injured by the other. When the unconscious is suppressed, it turns against us, as in neurosis. With Augustus, the stage is set to show the effects of such suppression through shadow archetypes. With the cat in the cradle, a disastrous split occurs between the conscious and unconscious. Jung sees this go in one of two ways. Either the subject no longer knows what he really wants and nothing interests him, or he wants too much at once and has too many interests, but in impossible things. Both are the result of an overactive unconscious. Augustus is paralyzed, stuck to one spot, trying to make sense of his story. The next step may see him attempt to create a new myth, one rooted in the childish fantasies he has so long denied himself. This may see him attempt too many escapist things at once. The end result is what might be termed an extravagant complexity. Rewind to the first game and Augustus makes a strong first impression. With a little help from Dad, Raz grows to titanic proportions. At that stage, Augustus's powers seem almost godly. But in the next game, Augustus doesn't come across nearly as powerful or assertive. In fact, he's shown just getting to grips with his psychic abilities. The impression is of the black belt reverting to a white belt, or the sage reverting to innocent. Arguably, Augustus's character has been retconned, this done perhaps to prepare him for his own mythic journey. In the beginning of Psychonauts 2, he can barely set fire to a pinecone, he's new to the psychic game, but by the end he's lost his innocence, and he's looking lost as an orphan. He's looking the part, playing the part, quite literally is the part. After finding out his mother died when he was a child, he is suddenly thrown into the orphan role, but he's no child now. The lateness of his revelation brings with it unresolved childhood issues. The sword that left unaddressed are shortened all their way through to the conscious mind. Left alone, the orphan begins to question his reality. The next question is where he might venture next. For the answer, one can seek guidance in the circle of life. To escape a restrictive environment takes an act of rebellion. Lucifer the Lightbringer turns against the very powers that rejected and exiled him. For him, home is to be found among other rebels or outcasts. Their outsider status makes them easier to identify with. It's the victims of war, the distant power downtrodden and oppressed, who are relatable to the rebel. It's those with no fixed place to call home, those who are always on the move. The wayward orphan may travel the world without ever settling down, like Cain or the wandering Jew. What you mean walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. Through ignoring feelings of pain, the orphan develops a false persona. Like a child desperate for love, the orphan conforms to whatever and whomever lavishes them with praise, but wherever they go, their inner voice continues to batter and berate them. Augustus's psychic deterioration could lead to an avoidance of pain and a pursuit of pleasure. The single-minded orphan keeps heading straight until he finds the bottom of a cliff. Once there, he has no option but to feel the pain. Being cast so suddenly into the orphan role can tip one over to the dark side. The orphan may start to see things in black and white. In their eyes, people come in two types. There were the victims and the victimizers. Noticing that the victimizers experience more power and control than the victims and a great deal less pain, the orphan may desire to be a winner, and so abusing others and manipulating the environment become part of the game. It's all just snakes and ladders, much better to be ahead than behind, above than below. The dragon commands fear with fire. While Lucretia churns the waves, Augustus ignites a pinecone. Together they form a duality of fire and water, lunar and solar, yin and yang. 
Like Melicula, the names Augustus and Lucretia have Roman origins. Lucretia comes from the Latin word lucrum, meaning wealth. Augustus is the Latin word for august, meaning respected, impressive, and venerable. Augustus is the same name adopted by the first Roman emperor. Similar to Emperor Palpatine, Emperor Augustus established a new type of government, one in which he was the sole absolute ruler. There's a sense of Augustus being cut from the same cloth as Lucretia. They might be dressed in rags, but their appearance belies a rich and powerful heritage. The name Augustus carries other curious associations. It's linked to the Latin word augur, meaning to protect the future, and so Augustus can be added to the psychonauts' pantheon of prophetic names. In French, Auguste refers to a tragic type of circus clown who wears battered ordinary clothes and is known for being maladroit or unlucky. August is of course a month of the year, usually considered the last month of summer. In this same month is celebrated the festival of Vulcan, adding to the fiery connotations. With fire in mind, one may also look to tyrant emperors such as Nero. During the Great Fire of Rome, Nero allegedly fiddled while the city burned before him. Just as Maligula represents the shadow of Lucretia, Augustus's shadow may too be a tyrant, but with fire in place of water. Time for the devil's fire holes. In Psychonauts 1, Vast or Augustus is a tyrant in monochromatic flashback and within the colorful landscape of his mind. The image of Augustus as the green-skinned fire-throwing monster is a mental projection. It's not the real Augustus, and yet it may contain a grain of prophetic truth. It could be that Raz, the great mystic, is looking beyond the curve. Can't have them running loose, leaving a trail of burning pine cones behind them. Being a stickler for the rules makes one less playful, spontaneous, easygoing, flexible. Those who stand rigid all the time are the most likely to snap. In the storm, it's better to be the bamboo than the oak and easier to be a fool than a ruler. Funner too. Those who neglect the fool within deny all those sensual pleasures that make life more bearable. They know something feels good, but they restrict themselves from doing that thing. The rules are there for a reason, they tell themselves. However, when fool energy is not allowed, it goes underground, turns to shadow. Help. There you go. The fool is an archetype closely associated with the midlife crisis. It's what turns the serious thespian into the singer of an experimental indie band, the prim office accountant into a hell's angel. It's the joker in a deck of playing cards, a sweet surprise that pops up just when you need it. The fool often emerges in our lives at the moments that seem most painful. When times get tough, the fool pokes its head through the door. It's there to remind us that life is good. You might be in the ninth circle of hell, but that's no reason not to enjoy that martini. The fool abides by the pleasure-seeking principle. If it feels good, it is good. At its best, the fool is the well-meaning jester, there to add a touch of brightness to one's day. But when the fool is repressed, it becomes the devil, the snake in the Garden of Eden, tempting us down the self-defeating spiral of madness. Ooh, I eat like a slob, but nobody minds. The shadow fool keeps us foolish and unconscious. The naive fool gets sucked in by the devil. The mad fool gets sucked in by their own subconscious. In madness, the ego cracks and the unconscious erupts chaotically into consciousness. With too much unsorted psyche material, the challenge is either to reconstruct an ego or go under. The mad fool is driven by a hyperactive unconscious, which threatens to consume the self. With Augustus heading down the foolish path full of fire and fury, his counter arc would be a circular one. With a mentor like Otto to guide him, one could imagine Augustus becoming too sure of himself, just like poor Icarus. 
After living the life of psychic abstinence, he might revel too much in his newfound powers. Later today, I'm thinking we should all go for a swim. That little army fellow offered to give us all swimming lessons. Setting fire to things can become an addiction, not just for psychics, but muggles too. Pyromania is listed in the American Psychiatric Textbooks as an act of aggression, which may be seen as an attempt to influence the environment and improve their self-esteem where other means have failed. It can be a cathartic release for those subject to a build-up of stress. The most frequent motives for arson by juveniles are revenge on parents or other authorities, the search for heroism or excitement, self-destructiveness, the craving for sensation and an expression of outrage. These motives are shared by the shadow fool, explorer, warrior and orphan. What ties them all together is a rebellious heart. An orphan will often look for surrogate parents to fill in the gap. Arguably Augustus has two in the form of Ford and Lucretia, but there's a long distance between him and them, and he likely feels betrayed by them, even if he doesn't say as much. These unvoiced feelings of anger and betrayal could eventually erupt in an explosive act of revenge. Augustus might need a little push before then. Left at sea, the orphan looks for a mentor to guide him. Augustus may just find one in Otto. However, Otto doesn't have his best interests at heart. All he sees is someone cut from the same cloth as Raz and Lucretia, that is a source of great psychic power. Otto uses a few astrolate-like devices to focus Augustus's powers, all the while playing with his emotions. He sees something special in Augustus, he says. Augustus becomes addicted to the power and the praise. Unlike Raz, he's too innocent to notice he's being toyed with. He hasn't completed his own mythic journey. He just knows that with Otto's help, he can more quickly attain godlike heights. At some point, Ford steps in, tries to put a halt to Otto's experiments, but it's too late. Ford laid the foundations, Otto stoked the flames. By this stage, Augustus's brain has been placed inside a robotic exoskeleton, or patchworked with other brains to heighten its power. Whichever way, it's been over-engineered. The past erupts into the present, the monster grows beyond control, the Psychonauts now have one big fiery dragon to contend with. On the other hand, Augustus's path might not be quite so sinister. A desire to start a new life might just inspire him to take his circus in a new direction, but this comes with its own set of problems. It could lead to an addiction to climbing the ladder. Those dead set on making the big time do not tend to be driven by empathy. Their journey is a lonely one. Money, praise and accomplishments replace commitments to friends and family. Well-being may also become neglected in the process. Wherever Augustus goes, it's likely to be a wildly different direction. The only question is whether it will take him to the edge of tyranny. But even if it does, there will likely be some rebalance along the way, as the new myth is integrated into the old. Back to the journey, Raz has crossed the twist in the Mobius Strip, following a meeting with a goddess, and now faces a battle against temptation. In order to go on, the hero must first exercise some restraint. Ford tells him he mustn't reveal the truth to his father, lest his brain turn to scrambled eggs. This is Pandora's box with a science fiction twist. It's a paradox that might make one think of Back to the Future. Messing with a small thing in the past could ripple through to the present, potentially erasing one's existence. Here the grandfather paradox has been translated to the realm of psychology. The time paradox is a mental paradox. The past is the unconscious, the present is the conscious. With the unconscious left in an unsorted state, the past risks erupting into the present and consuming the self. With temptation overcome, Vaz meets Cassie, where he receives a quick lecture about archetypes. 
It's the level most closely tied to the concept, and it shares similarities to that of another creative type, this one a painter. Idgar lives in the dark world bristling with colour. The tight-knit alleys are sprinkled with painterly archetypes. There's the four missing queen cards, symbolising his old flame Lana. There's the Hispanic love triangle, involving a fiery femme fatale, her infatuated lover, and a seductive bullfighter, recalling the lover archetypes of Carmen. There's a half-bull and half-man dashing around a maze-like town, recalling the myth of the Minotaur. Really though, we're interested in these four fellows. These black velvet subjects turned artists have distinctly different personalities, and that's because each one was written with a specific archetype in mind. All becomes clear when you pay attention to the way they talk, as well as the way they walk. At the start is the Saint Bernard, whose yearnings for freedom circle him out as a keen explorer. Kick a brandy around my friggin' neck! See in the world! Next is the Fussy Collie, whose discerning taste and pretentious gaze describe him as purebred artist. The smart-talking Dalmatian has a sharp tongue, much like a judge or critic. <laughs> yeah, right! Last, there's the Bulldog, who breaks the mold. The Bulldog is an animal closely associated with the warrior archetype. In Edgar's mind, the archetype is subverted for comic effect. Dive deeper, though, and another level reveals itself. After losing his love, Edgar lost his ability to fight, as well as his backbone. This explains why the Bulldog comes without a spine. The spine now belongs to the Bull, or the Shadow Warrior. Similar to Cassie's level, once all the archetypes have been reunited, the Shadow disappears, and stability returns to the realm. Recognizing the character's shadow helps one understand they're in the landscape. In Psychonauts, a troubled mind is usually caused by too much or too little of one archetype, Balance restored when the archetypes are working in unison again. In Jungian language, this imbalance is the result of possession by the shadow. The job of Vras is to psychically exorcise these demons, but when his work is done, these shadows don't disappear completely. They're just reduced in size or put back in their place. The main thing is they've stopped meddling with the processes of the conscious mind. Whether it's over the judge, seeker, destroyer, or ruler, one has to learn to integrate the bad with the good. Only then can the individual be free from the tyranny of the dragon within. The concept of archetypes is closely linked to the gods. As Jung wrote, the gods have become our diseases. Our pathologies and neuroses can be thought of as calls from the gods. When one god prevails over the rest, our minds become imbalanced. Cassie's level reflects this in a nutshell. The name Cassiopeia is a close homophone of Cassiopeia, a female figure from Greek mythology, as well as a constellation. Like many names in Psychonauts, it has roots in classical antiquity. Cassie's level might be the most antiquated of the lot. It's a grand old library, with a celestial globe, classical-style busts, and lots of leather-bound books. Constellations like the ceiling. The impossibly vast spaces and impossibly tall columns make it a mythic place. A great library built by a cult of bee worshippers, perhaps. Just as the great library was devoted to the muses, Cassie's library contains her own personal sources of inspiration. The archetypes that make up Cassie's mind are her own in the muses. In the beginning, the library revolves around a single muse archetype god, but after reclaiming the scattered crew, the muses unite, and Cassie has access to all inner sources of goodness. One of Cassie's archetypes is a teacher. Really though, she's a mentor, a Merlin-like figure who aids or trains the hero. Vogler writes, this archetype is expressed in all those characters who teach and protect heroes 
and give them gifts. In Psychonauts, Teacher Cassie offers the hero a unique, if slightly irritating, psychic gift. Similarly, in Greek mythology, demigods like Perseus and Hercules receive gifts from the gods to help them in their quests. You'll get better with practice. Similar to the word archetype, the word mentor comes from the ancient Greeks. Mentor is related to the word mental, meaning mind. It's also related to the Greek element menos, which specifically means mental strength. In Homer's Odyssey, Athena says she will put menos into the hero. Simply put, menos is mental strength, and the mentor is someone who gives it. Like Athena, Teacher Cassie can change her appearance at whim. She's a mentor, but also a bit of a trickster. Yep. And I thought I was the tricky one. This combination of mentor and trickster is part of what makes her personality so distinctive. Her teachings are based on trickster qualities, namely the ability to think and act flexibly. The fact that Cassie used to work as a counterfeiter is likely no coincidence. The trickster is known for counterfeiting appearances. This is something teacher Cassie is especially gifted at, and it's the same gift she imparts to her people. Would you like me to teach you how? However, not all mentors are helpful nor to be trusted. Sometimes a mentor turns villain or betrays the hero. In Psychonauts 1, a tough drill sergeant introduces the hero to the ways of the special world, but the coach harbors a secret agenda. From the get-go, the game invites the player to question the motives of these so-called mentors. Balancing trust with caution is a lesson the hero too must learn. His path is strewn with conmen, cheaters and connivers. They're there to test his judgement. And if the hero is too innocent, he might just fall into their trap. The character of Otto is a possible candidate for Shadow Mentor. In the world of Psychonauts, Sasha serves as a father figure to the hero, and arguably Otto serves as an uncle figure. He's the kindly toy tinkerer, the mechanical-minded Geppetto, the psychic equivalent of Q. He's the maker of gadgets, but any machine with his name attached is not to be trusted. It's his invention that marks the centre of all major plot developments in Psychonauts 2. It's Otto who served as Ford's right-hand man, who helped bring on board Lucretia. He's an uncle to the Psychonauts organisation too, and he's the only founding member still active within the organisation. The only one who managed to escape from a battle unscathed. Uncles get a bad rep, especially in the classics. They're the cruel, power-hungry usurpers of thrones, who typically meet a tragic end. One can easily see Otto succumbing to a fate not dissimilar to that of Lobotto at the end of the first game. Too smart for his own good, he's said to be hoisted by his own petard. In Greek tragedy, the hero's downfall is almost always the result of hubris. Hubris is defined as excessive pride towards or defiance of the gods, leading to nemesis. Nemesis means retributive justice, that is, getting one's just deserts. Psychonauts 2 makes no subtle show of Otto's hubris, although perhaps the descriptor that most springs to mind is narcissistic. Whether it be through his own words or those of his psychic iterations, Otto comes across as a show-off know-it-all. There might be some truth to his pride, but it's exaggerated. Tragic heroes are often superior people with extraordinary powers, but they tend to see themselves as equal to or better than the gods. Otto might be smart, but he's prone to over-engineering things. Otto over-engineers everything. Otto ticks off a few hallmarks of the Hollywood movie villain. He wields a German name and a suave accent. He believes in his own superiority. He has too many brains and too few ethics. 
he's a shadowed man of mystery. One has to question what's going on in that lab of his. There's a whole load of brains floating around, and Otto seems keen to tinker with them. This desire to galvanize brings to mind the experiments of Dr. Frankenstein, and in turn the Botto. One may start to wonder if he's building a superweapon, a brain tank writ large, or some sort of giant hybrid supercomputer. In Western fantasy, scientists are always meddling with nature, with disastrous results. Hijacking someone's brain for your own selfish purposes rarely pans out well. The overly ambitious scientist, with few to no moral scruples, is only thinking about the scientific potential and the potential profit. Small cosmetic changes to their personalities. Like how an injectable neurotoxin removes wrinkles, but uh, for the mind. The efficient thinking scientist views the brain as a machine, but not a totally efficient one. There are these things called emotions which get in the way. Remove them, heighten the attributes most relevant to the task at hand, and you now have a brain working with maximum efficiency. A platoon of machine-like brains could work wonders for the military. Minds free from feelings of fear and doubt could think without friction. Without emotions, nor a human body to contend with, these soldiers could shoot without qualms, add a few psychic powers to the mix, and you have unstoppable fighting machines. The concept of super-soldiers is not just science fiction. The world's militaries have often driven technological innovation, and the US, China and France are all set to be working behind closed doors to build their ideal super-soldier. In 2014, Obama announced to journalists that the US were building Iron Man, the Talos exoskeleton was demonstrated in a video game-like promotional video. The wearer of the suit is ambushed by the enemy, but it's no thing. Bullets ping off the suit like flies. During the onslaught, the suit is none the worse for wear. Its wearer is cool as a metallic cucumber. Beyond the suit, there's the body and the mind. The suit can only achieve so much. Much better if the trigger finger belonged to a sharp thinker, if the eyes were equipped with night vision. The ears could have a pin drop, the legs never grew tired, the flesh never felt pain. Of course, such technology could also be used for fields outside of battle. Athletes, musicians, mathematicians, surgeons and circus performers could all benefit, at least from a statistical perspective. But with the emotions removed, the art becomes soulless, the work becomes soulless, the person becomes soulless. One could imagine a scale with human on one side and machine on the other. At a certain tipping point, a man turns into a tin man. A cognitively enhanced mind inside an impenetrable exoskeleton would make a powerful asset. This image served as the centerpiece for the comet Doom, a science fiction tale from amazing stories. Here the mind is covered by black metal instead of flesh. When the body was worn out, it was a simple matter to remove the brain from it and place it in a new body. These are not just super soldiers, but immortal soldiers, and psychic soldiers too as they converse by means of thought impulses, and were neither capable of making a sound vocally, nor of hearing one uttered. Mind control has long been on the radar of the US military. Hollywood is partly to blame. The 1982 thriller Firefox centered around a Soviet fighter jet, which could be flown by thoughts alone. The film apparently served as fuel for the military's own mind control experiments. Meanwhile, there have been several stories of US Army officers approaching scientists involved in BMI, or Brain Machine Interface Technology. One officer was said to have been interested in creating a helmet, which could silently beam unspoken thoughts from soldier to soldier on the battlefield. 
Communication without language might be seen as an advantage. Imagine you could transmit thoughts directly to another brain or machine with no need for typing or talking. It would arguably make us smarter, faster and more efficient in our thinking, and when involved in a high-stakes situation, like fighting on the battlefield, that split-second pull of the trigger could make all the difference. However, it would also mean communication without nuance, similar to how binary code operates in ones and zeros. Our thoughts would be channeled down a very narrow track. This is the same sort of communication that would take place in the brain-to-brain -brain interface. Such an interface involves linking up brains as if they were microprocessors to create a biological supercomputer. The effect is similar to Cassie's mind swarm technique, itself based on the concept of the hive mind. Get multiple minds working on the same task, and they'll do it with Amish-like efficiency. However, the difference between a computer brain and a Cassie brain lies in the motivation. One brain acts of its own volition, while another is coerced to action. The merging of human brain activity is seen by some as the next stage in our species' evolution, but the biological supercomputer presents similar ethical dilemmas to the super-soldier. A brain perfectly equipped to perform a specific task is arguably more machine than human. The subject's sense of agency would be compromised, as would their sense of personhood. Less with the human mind too much, and you might be left wondering how much of the original remains. In psychological terms, Otto is living life at the level of the ego. With the ego not fully developed, a person runs into problems. He spends his days dressing up strawberries and sombreros. He thinks childishly, acts childishly. He's swimming in the world of whimsy. He's living in a fantasy bubble. He's prey to his own selfish appetites. Crystal and Otto could hold hands in this regard. Crystal's character is based on the archetype of the pure Eternus, or the Eternal Boy. In pop psychology, this sort is said to be afflicted by Peter Pan syndrome. They're not interested in personal growth, they'd much rather be a child forever. But while Crystal acts like a kid, Otto acts more like a robot. He seems unperturbed by the past, he seems cool to a fault, like an unregulated refrigerator. He lacks a certain human quality, He's lacking that sweet thing called soul. Wrinkles, but uh, for the mind. Pinocchio begins his journey a wooden puppet, but ends it a real living, breathing human boy. Otto's journey seems to be moving the reverse direction. The boy puppet must prove himself to be brave, truthful, and unselfish to get that sweet soul. These are three qualities with which Otto doesn't exactly shine. He's the egocentric magician, who prioritizes his own personal power above all else. The opposite of the caregiver, he would rather wolf down that delicious donut than share it with others. One of the supreme quests of the alchemist is to turn lead into gold, but any alchemist worth his salt knows that the physical reward at the journey's end is no match for the treasure within. The spirit must shine before the gold, otherwise the journey's as hollow as a pinpricked egg, as flat as that thing on the bottom of your shoe. Otto is the alchemist who wants the gold without the growth. This is dangerous. Hollywood has taught as much. What it all comes down to is ego. The hero begins their journey with the ego pulling the reins, but that's no longer the case once they find new friends, fathers, and lovers to care for. Raz, you came! When Vaz dives into Otto's mind, he's likely to find a man high on his own egoic supply. On several occasions, Tim Schafer has spoken about his interest in the narcissistic mind. 
One could imagine the landscape where every character one meets, from old lady to baby to dog, has the same face as the thinker. For the ego-minded narcissist, everything and everyone reflects the self. There's also the question of autonomy. It's unknown if Otto's mental circuits have been tinkered with. In that case, you could have a clockwork mind, crammed with cogs and gears, a few traces of warmth flickering in some far-flung corner. Emotions of pain, compassion, regret and fear could be buried deep within the structure. It could be that the Otto-mentalis of today is more automaton than man. Otto ranks high on the hubrisometer. Read his full name out loud and it bears a personal resemblance to Ozymandias, the Greek name for the pharaoh Ramses II, and the titled subject of Shelley's classic sonnet all about hubris. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. His stone face lies half sunk in a desert, a colossal wreck ravaged by the sands of time. All rulers have their time in the sun, but when their time's up, their time's up. All those godly aspirations and pretensions to greatness amount to little in the end, just the crumbling remains of a bygone age. In flashbacks, Otto is shown grinning like a Cheshire cat, while in present day scenes he is shown with a sour expression on his purse. Both expressions are linked together by a common thread, that thread being the relative presence and absence of one Ford Cruller. There were hints of bad blood between Otto and Ford. For example, there's that scene of Ford calling Otto's invention a hunk of junk. Now, this hunk of junk was made by Otto Mentalis. So, uh, there's no telling what might happen. Prior to that, he pokes fun at his weight. Otto, you're looking well fed. And by the game's end, Otto doesn't exactly seem pleased by Ford's return. You know, I missed that old abusive so-and-so. You need a guy around like that to keep you humble. Why is that? I don't know. It's just something Ford keeps telling me. Conversely, in flashbacks, Otto is happiest when Ford is absent-eyed in the background or completely out of the picture. In fact, Otto really seems to enjoy the spotlight. Once upon a time, Otto was the right-hand man of a supreme leader. Then that leader cracked and was replaced by a new one with a magnificent curly Q beard. Then that leader was kidnapped and had his brain removed. These leaders seem rather vulnerable, one might start to think to oneself. Otto is a relic from a distant time, but secretly, he might just be eyeing up the throne. If he pulls off the power grab, the Shadow Seeker becomes Shadow Ruler. The evil ruler archetype is best represented by the character of King Claudius in Hamlet. Claudius usurps the throne through the use of poison. He administers a lethal dose of poison to old King Hamlet, but he also poisons in a more symbolic sense. In order to retain his kingly position, he corrupts the minds of those closest to him. Thankfully, a young hero gets wind of his wicked ways and delivers a dose of good old-fashioned revenge. At the heart of Otto's story is the theme of technology and its inherent dangers. Otto is only thinking about the end result, but he doesn't have the foresight to see what will come of his actions. He's too enthralled to passion, too blinded by ambition, he will likely learn the hard way. When you still fire from the gods, you get burnt, and that's if you're lucky. Cassie is burdened by an altogether different type of problem. Her character is best understood from a holistic perspective. Inside her reside four archetypes. Each in her archetype represents one part of a personality. Together they make up a whole. But with the parts split up, or one part more inflated than the rest, the whole is broken. Archetypes are limitless. 
Even though Cassie is represented as four archetypes, really she's much more than that. Inside each of the four archetypes are further archetypes, and so unpacking each Cassie is a bit like unpacking a Russian doll. First there's the writer. The writer yearns to explore. She seeks to escape her surroundings, to travel far from home. The outside matches the inn. She seeks to explore the unvisited territories of the mind. She's climbing the ladder of success, trying to become the best she can be. She's an explorer. Then again, she's also an innocent. The innocent helps establish the persona, the mask we wear in the world, our personality, our social role. The writer is the mask she wears during social sign-ins. It's the archetype that makes her the most money. The inner innocent dreams big dreams. When she's writing, she's an optimist. That's how she brings inspiration to others and inspires them to clean out their wallets. The writer reflects the Jungian archetype of the persona, the mask we wear out in public. This is the conformity archetype. It's the part of us that seeks acceptance from the world, the part of us that people tend to love and admire the most. For Cassie, it's not entirely an act. She's also a devoted teacher or caregiver. Similar to Miller, she's a soft nurturing hand that gently nudges the player along the way. She's Jung's concept of the self in the guise of the wise old woman. She's the fairy godmother. She's transformative, a bit of a trickster, akin to the medieval Merlin or the Greek god Hermes. All tricksters are also shapeshifters and wear disguises. She's the con artist who helps her fellow selves escape. The counterfeiter is an outlaw. She's alone in the hostile world. She needs the fight to survive. She's a warrior by way of orphan. She'll cut off anything that threatens her survival, including parts of herself. This is the id, the part of the psyche that runs on instincts. In it reside our primal passions and urges. It's the tiger lurking in the dark. It's the shadow, the animal side of our personality. Touch one sprinkle and I'll kill you. That's the id talking. The librarian is the ruler slash destroyer. The ruler is not bad per se, it's only when she's too controlling that problems occur. Ideally, the ruler should promote a diversity of voices, but when the librarian gets mean, she says shh, and when meaner, she'll shut out all voices but her own. By ruling out these potential parts of ourselves, they become oppressed, imprisoned, incapable of growth. The ruler is the committee chairperson who sees to the order of the psyche. The librarian sits in the center of it all, deciding which archetypes need to be loaned out for that particular occasion. As it turns out, that would be none of them. This is the shadow ruler speaking, the yoga tyrant, insisting on his or her own way and banishing creative elements of the kingdom. The shadow ruler is motivated by a strong need to control. Dangerous books. These are the books that got us into this horrible situation. These are the wrong books, you understand? There's a reason why Cassie's ruler has drawn such strict lines. It's not mere control freakery, but circumstance which has drawn her to the shadow side. I'll help you with the whole alphabet, Sonny. As the psychonauts changed, so did she. The psychonauts of the past was focused on exploring the possibilities of the human mind. Its interests aligned with Cassie's. But the psychonauts of the present is more interested in money and power. The organization has become possessed by the shadow seeker. It's less interested in nurturing the mind. It would rather milk profit from it. Jung's concepts were written with traditional notions of masculine and feminine behavior in mind. In typical behavior models, men strive for autonomy, toughness, and the ability to compete. 
while women yearn for connection, intimacy, and empathy skills. The typical masculine stance is to find identity and truth through separation. The feminine stance is to find it through identification and connection. In Cassie we find at first someone ruled by overly masculine principles. Jung might say she's been possessed by the animus, that is the unconscious masculine side of her personality. This makes more sense when we consider how she distances herself from the psychonauts and that old cornball about the things ignored being the things that inevitably own us. As the psychonauts organization became more interested in money and power, Cassie became more interested in separating herself from them. In doing so she repressed the more masculine ruling force and right brain aspects of her person. This resulted in them coming back to bite her in monstrous form. Jung wrote, The animus is obstinate, harping on principles, laying down the law. Dogmatic, world-reforming, theoretic, word-mongering, argumentative and domineering, it's only once her fellow selves journey into the belly of the dragon that it can be reformed. Balance is brought back to the inner kingdom, the animus is integrated into the psyche, and the one becomes the many. Cassie's archetypes are, for the most part, based on the ego types. These are the innocent, the caregiver, the orphan and the warrior. Looking back to the blueprint, these are the archetypes most prevalent in the beginning stages. Together they help the hero prepare for his journey. When the hero prepares for the journey he's developing his ego, and thus this set of four archetypes, Pearson writes, These archetypes help us establish the fundamental components of ego consciousness, and later, the psychological terrain here is the internalized family. These four archetypes reflect the archetypal roles of the family system. Psychic balance is achieved through diversification. By developing the ego, the hero is developing the family within. Christopher Vogler knew as much when writing The Lion King. Young Nala, Scar, Sarabi and Mufasa, they make up the main pride, and together they represent that familiar quartet of innocent orphan caregiver and warrior. In Psychonauts 2, Raz is shown interacting with his family for the first time. As they open up, so too do their archetypes. First there's Creepy, a bauble-headed innocent. It's not just his appearance, but his desire to find his social role that makes him so. Listen to it with you? No! Augustus is the orphan who desperately wants to fit in, but by the end is left feeling all alone. Donatella is the caregiver, the fiercely nurturing mother, who doesn't mind embarrassing her son in front of a crowd. Frazier is the warrior, the teen girl with Moxie, quite happy to chuck a pinecone at your face. There are other family members like Dion, a rebel slash lover, likely styled after James Dean a archetypal pin-up of teenage angst. What's important is that each family member has been written with specific archetypes in mind, and that these archetypes all find their home within the hero. On the whole, Vaz represents the archetype of the divine child. He embodies perfect innocence, while also seeing and understanding the world as it is. Similar to Lily, he's a precocious child born with innate psychic gifts. When training, he outstrips his peers, when investigating, he's the first to piece together the clues, and when a character is in need, he is the one who saves. Let's clean up this mess. Raz is the most rounded character in the game. He's the opposite of the silent protagonist. This artistic decision was inspired by Schaefer's stint at LucasArts. When Monkey Island began development, the main character initially had no name. This prompted George Lucas to impart a valuable piece of advice. 
In Schaefer's words, he explained how you can put all of your eggs behind the main character and build everything else around that, make the whole story be that person's story. In other words, Lucas encouraged the writer to invest fully in the main character and make the whole story revolve around them. Like Monkey Island's main guy, Raz is the lovable fool. His silliness helps make him endearing. When the hero gets pilloried, we're more likely to side with him than his tormentors. Try not to fall asleep in my class. Alright, Repscallion. And yet the fool must walk a fine line. When they get too silly, they come across as childish rather than childlike. They act too much on whim. They make decisions almost exclusively based on the pleasure principle. Unable to contain themselves, they become self-destructive. Unable to bond with others, they care only for themselves. The Shadow Fool is close friends with Chaos. Scatterbrained, they fail to see their plans through. Big-headed, they fail to transcend the self. By the end, all they're left with are castles in the air. The mind too trapped in Neverland to care. The hero is different. The hero learns to let go. Following their rebirth, they recognize that true growth requires sacrifice. They can't go on being a child forever. They can't keep on playing the naive innocent, nor fool. They might struggle at first, but that's only because they've been ignorant for too long. And delusions are like cobwebs. The longer they cling, the trickier they are to shake. Again, the hero must have a little faith. Stop! Let me go! At this point, the hero has united with the goddess. They've made peace with their feminine side. Now comes the flip side. Their father awaits. But before the two can unite, the hero must come face to face with his past. They must learn to separate reality from delusion. With the truth identified, they must then abandon their old childish ways. If not, they'll keep on wandering the fool. This stage traditionally marks the hero's passage into adulthood. It's when the hero puts aside the petty stuff and makes atonement with the father. Atonement is literally at one moment. It's a state of unity, of reconciliation. The word has roots in Christianity. Traditionally, it refers to the unity between man and God. In heroic narratives, the father is the God creator. He may come across as petty and cruel, but this is not the whole of the man. It's just one aspect, blown up to sensational proportions. The ogre aspect of the father is a reflex of the victim's own ego. To abandon attachment to the ego is to banish one's childish delusions. In order to grow, the ogre must go. In its stead should be a balanced, more realistic view of the father and therewith of the world. Balance comes through accepting the father for who he really is, and for that one must have a little faith. It's faith that the father is merciful, and then a reliance on that mercy. By relinquishing control, one's beliefs drift away from the orbit of one's ego, and the monster's out of sight. I have a lot more hair than that. When it comes to atonement, Psychonauts 1 and 2 differ in one key respect. Roles are reversed from one game to the next. In Psychonauts 1, it's the father who frees the son from his childish delusion. Is that really how I look in your mind? In the sequel, it's the son who frees the father from his. It's just something Ford put in our minds to keep us safe. In addition, the son gets over his delusion far quicker than the father. Cracks deepen with time. The father's delusion has existed from childhood to mid-adulthood. Outside help may be needed. The hero finds himself trapped in some shadowed corner. 
The monster starts towards him for what looks like the last time. There's no way out, and even if there was, there's no way the hero could take that thing on alone. What happens next is welcome relief. The hero is helped from an unexpected source. In Campbell's words, he receives assistance from without. It's a moment of deus ex machina, or God from a machine. The concept comes from the conventions of Greek theatre. The machine refers to a crane used to suspend a god over the stage. Alternatively, the machine could refer to a riser, which lifts the god through a trap door. The god almost always appears at the end of the play. Their job is to astonish the audience and save the hero from a tragic fate. In Psychonauts 1, that unlikely source is Augustus. He drops in to assist the hero just before the big finale. Lucretia performs a similar act in Psychonauts 2, but before her, it's the interns who lend a helping hand. Like in the Greek play, the help descends from high up yonder. The hero down below is still very much vulnerable, very much human. But not for much longer, for the fates are about to make a god out of him. He's demonstrated those heroic traits of bravery, truthfulness and unselfishness. He's given up attachment to the ego. It's only right that his spirit should ascend, and his body with it. It's a good old apotheosis. This word stems again from the ancient Greeks. To apotheosize is to elevate to godlike heights. During this stage, the audience may themselves feel elated. They've been put through their paces, but there can be no doubt now. It's crystal clear. The hero is indeed the chosen one. In both games, the hero grows to titanic proportions to match the monstrous height of his rival. This divine power is granted by a close family member, one he has recently made amends with. In such a way, the event confirms not just the divinity of the hero, but also his ancestral line. Let's recap the journey so far. After taking that first brave step into the unknown, enduring sundry tests and trials, braving the inmost lair of the villain, traversing the land of the dead, experiencing death and rebirth, meeting a shapeshifting goddess, making peace with the father, and dancing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil, the hero has finally been given the divine stamp of approval. One can breathe a little easier. This person is definitely predestined for greatness, or at least most probably. A battle is the site of climax and catharsis, again Greek words. Climax means ladder. It's that point in the story when conflict is at its highest. It's the peak of a roller coaster. Tension has been built. Now all that pent-up emotion is on the verge of coming out, in the catharsis naturally. This one means vomiting up or purging. The ancient Greeks used to take purgatives to empty and cleanse their digestive systems. For them, drama had a similar effect on the mind removing from it all in thought and feeling. Laughter, tears and shudders of terror are the triggers that bring about this healthy feeling, this catharsis. A catharsis is often combined with a simple physical showdown. This is the big boss battle that tops off the hero's arc. In both Psychonauts games, the villain is a devil in need of exorcism. However, the feeling of catharsis is more pronounced in the sequel. This is achieved by attributing to the villain deep feelings of sadness and remorse. He killed my sister! Similarly, the feeling of climax is more pronounced by elevating the fight to a high plateau, the top of a roof, tower or mountain. These are classic backdrops for a big Hollywood climax. It's all down from here. Hero, villain or both are about to fall to their doom. 
they're on the border between life and death, and the audience the edge of their seats. The greater the risk, the bigger the reward. Following this deadliest of scuffles, the hero will be blessed with her greatest gift yet. It's the Holy Grail, the Golden Fleece, the Fountain of Youth. It's the gift that keeps on giving, otherwise known as the ultimate boon. In the beginning, the hero explorer seeks some great treasure for himself, but by the end he decides to share that treasure with the world. The ultimate gift is reserved for only the most worthy of heroes. The fool is not so fortunate. King Midas wishes everything he touches turns to gold, but he fails to read the small print, and the gods punish him for it. Those who chase infantile fantasies of physical power, riches or the like, never prosper. Those who prioritize spiritual enlightenment tend to fare better. The gods look upon them kindly. They free themselves from base ego. Above everyone else, it should be them who gets the gold. The ultimate gift is the elixir that restores balance to the world. In Psychonauts, Rath subdues the devil within to save the kingdom without. The camp and the mother lobe are no longer ruled by the gods of chaos and destruction. Order is restored. After Meligius' defeat, Raz returns with a physical elixir. It's a brain within the box. It's a hard-earned treasure. But yet, it's the story's holy grail. Raz is a hero of the Arthurian tradition. Like Indiana Jones, he's strangely dressed for a night. You're strangely dressed for a night. But look beneath the trench coat, and you'll find an old-fashioned man of steel and beneath the story, an old-fashioned quest for knighthood. Will you be a psychonaut? There's a lady in the lake, in the form of Linda, a magical lake-dwelling being who plays a pivotal role in the knight's quest. Their chivalric romance, involving a damsel in semi-distress, imprisoned at the top of a tall tower, and she's not the only one who needs saving. Look back to the grail stories of the 12th century, and you'll come across the character of the wounded or fisher king, his second alien constitution is responsible for the kingdom turning into a wasteland. It's the job of a younger knight to find a cure for his ailment. First, though, he'll have to venture through a dark forest. Braving his deepest fears brings him into possession of the elixir. Healing the king brings the kingdom back to its former glory. In short, Ras is the knight who must slay the dragon, save the princess, and heal the wounded ruler. This is also corroborated in cat scan number three on page 59 of your handouts. The hero appears to have slain the monster, but the battle's not yet done. The monster has something special up their sleeve. It's time for the hero to act fast in that last mad dash called the magic flight. This stage typically occurs after some long and stressful ordeal. In the fantasies of George Lucas, it's the scene after the hero has stolen a great treasure whether it be an ancient relic or plans for the Death Star. The hero thinks he's safe, but he's not out of the woods yet. Come on, buddy, we're not out of this yet. From here he must make leave and fast. Most often this takes the form of a thrilling chase sequence, its job to keep the audience on their toes. Vaz and Augustus escape the black hole of the Butcher. Maligula makes a last-ditch attempt at survival, grasping one-handedly at the edge of a cliff and threatening to drag down the loved one. It's all very action Hollywood. A swift snip of the scissors takes care of that, and the audience can go back to breathing. Accompanying this stage is the archetype of the sage. The shadow sage is the unfeeling judge, or fat-headed critic, who gets high on putting others down. 
but in its more positive form, the sage learns non-attachment. To be free of attachment is to be free of suffering, as the Buddhists like to say. Lucretia accepts Melicula as a part of herself, but she also learns to separate herself from it. The sage stands beyond our thoughts, feelings and desires, merely watching the action. Balance comes through observing the self as an outsider. Truth comes through looking beyond the limit and veil of one's own personal biases. Through knowledge and self-discipline, one becomes aware of one's own dark thoughts, and better positioned to control them. The demons are delegated to the basement, and the mind is free to dance. I have a little party favor for you. Following the ultimate climax, the coaster begins its slow wind down to the end of the line. The ride may end with one final twist, but from here to there the track should be relatively gentle. The circle is coming to a close, excitement levels are flattening out, the fun's almost over. All that's left now is to cross the return threshold. A proper thriller is made up of sharp dips, twists and turns, but throw in too many loops and you're bound to create a few knots along the way. That's where the return comes into play. Its job is to unwind both the ride and rider. The French call this stage the denouement, the English, the unknotting. The twisty lines of the track create conflict and tension. All that leftover tension must now find a gradual release. If there's too many knots, the ride ends up feeling messy. The rider needs to make sense of it all, and for that he needs a clear head and stomach. The denouement is where knots are untied, and also where loose ends are tied up. Loose ends lead to gaps. Gaps lead to questions. Too many questions and the ride loses its smoothness. At the same time, a few unanswered questions may be desirable. A ride might end with one last twist to shock the senses, or it might leave a few loose threads to compel them to get on board the sequel. Generally speaking though, the return serves to bring the circle to a close and the rider back down to earth. The hero returns from the mystic realm of dreams, illusions and shadows to the land of common day, but he's not coming back empty-handed, even if that seems the case. He returns transformed. He returns with the reality-bending powers of the magician. The magician has many names. Shaman, witch, sorcerer, healer, fortune teller, priest, priestess, alchemist. Through them, base emotions are transformed into gold. The magician's powers are more in line with the hypnotherapist than the card sharp. They perform sleight of mind, altering the state of consciousness within to transform the reality without. How are they holding their cards? Uh, st uh, sticky paws? The magician possesses deep access to the subconscious mind. It's the dominant archetype when we experience foreshadowing of future events. It's never laid bare, but the hero of Psychonauts seems strangely in tune to the future. It might just be the airwaves talking, but the Galocchios were said to be a fortune-telling family, and Raz has some of their blood in him so future sight may just be a latent gift. The magician is prominent in the ancient shaman. After entering the trance, the shaman journeys to another world. Through this altered state they were able to access those parts of the mind left ignored during the busy working day. Sometimes they act with the help of a spirit guide in the form of an animal. The animal guides them in the fantasy. With this creature by their side, they are better able to exorcise those pesky basement demons. Crossing the return threshold marks another moment of rebirth. 
In Psychonauts 1, Raz returns to the real world by the caravan in which he was born. In Psychonauts 2, Raz and Lucretia awake in a tranquil lake. Once again, water is used as a symbol of renewal, the same symbolic trick used in The Lion King. Lucretia has been cleansed from her personal demon and all manner of sin. Raz is no longer haunted by the hand of Galocchio. For the both, this is the beginning of a new life. Augustus is yet to be immersed. Ultimately, Psychonauts tells an optimistic story of heroism. Sometimes the story cuts away from the hero's point of view, but for the most part, events are viewed from the perspective of the child hero, and so the closing message is an uplifting one. This message accompanies the hero's crowning achievement in the stage known as the Master of Two Worlds. This is where the hero receives public veneration. Luke Skywalker gets a medal, Aragorn gets a crown, Raz gets a new set of clothes. This stage typically takes the form of a victory ceremony. It's where the hero is crowned a knight or king. Here the hero is fully awake. Having plunged below the world of common day into the special world, he has penetrated the essence behind the substance and emerged with a new transfigured view of reality. The hero is now a master of both domestic and foreign worlds and can pass seamlessly between them. The victory scene creates a sense of finality. In Psychonauts 2, a light-hearted ceremony plants a merry full stop to Raz's adventures. He's exorcised the family demon and is now an official junior agent of the Psychonauts. The first game uses the stage to bring all the main characters together. Here again the feeling is one of unity. Raz has mended his troubled relationship with his father, who looks on with pride, also looking on on the carved faces of the Psychonauts founders. And it's the founding father who does the dubbing. It's a classic initiation ritual. Between the old family and the new, between earth and sky, stands the savior hero. He's knitted together both worlds, and the gods bless him for it. Will you be? Sometimes you never want the ride to end. You've experienced thrills and spills. The thought of returning to solid ground just seems plain dull. Besides, you've really settled into your seat, and you've gotten to know your fellow passengers pretty well. It would be a shame to leave. So begins the refusal of the return. Little Johnny goes away on sabbatical, meets the love of his life, finds spiritual bliss in a bottle of wine, and sees a painting so beautiful he almost dies. Normal life just doesn't cut it anymore. There's nothing waiting for him back home. Just the wife and a pet rabbit named Bob. He decides to stay. Elsewhere, a young child has just been dubbed a knight. He's gone from clowning in rags to being crowned a king. It's the greatest achievement of his life so far. Returning to the circus would be a step back. Plus, he's having too much fun at camp. The hero doesn't want his adventures to end. Hey, the summer's not over yet. We can hang out for a couple of weeks still. The hero catches a lucky break. The same can't be said of the Grand Head. He's been kidnapped. The hero knows a thing or two about rescue missions. He might just be the best kid for the job, but a kid needs parental consent. And with that final blessing comes the freedom to live. It's only fair the hero should live the life of their choosing. They found a balance between the internal and external. They've slain and subdued all manner of dragons. If there's anyone deserving of freedom, it's them. Without freedom, their talents would go to waste. They would wither away in the shadows. They would suffer the same fate as those who need to be saved. The hero understands what it is to be trapped. He hears the hidden cries of help. The divine child is the savior, born to rescue those in need. 
Psychonauts 1 ends with a matinee-style cliffhanger. It ends on an ellipsis rather than a full stop. But one thing is made clear. With his dad's permission, the hero is free to go adventuring again. I've taught you everything I can, son. Now, you go show them. Show them all. In the sequel, the hero's adventuring continues past the credits. Raz is free to explore the Mother Lobe's grounds and clear up any side quests he might have missed. But I'll bet if I snuck in a little extra credit work, that would really irritate Norma. He's also free to converse with its inhabitants, many of whom have unfinished business to attend to. These conversations serve as a sort of epilogue. Each one adds to the sense of an evolving world. Together they say the same thing. One story may be over, but there's plenty more beyond the horizon. Good luck on your mission, guys. Psychonauts has long been conceived as a trilogy. It's an episodic saga in the style of Star Wars. The hero may have completed his mission, but the overarching story is not yet done. A new day brings new shadows, new challenges to face. There's a body frozen in hibernation, a mind frozen in hibernation. The latter bears all the signs of a long dormant volcano about to explode. Beyond body and mind there are the archetypes, timeless, eternal. The divine child who was born to save, the narcissistic seeker who dares to defy the gods, the orphan who stands on the edge of a precipice, there may be some fresh unexpected twist around the corner, but underlying the whole is a tale as old as time. Rasputin? I'm on him. Now darling, you can stay here for a few days until your parents come for you, but we can't let you participate in any paranormal training without your parents' consent. I'm sorry. That's ridiculous. I didn't ask for a new intern. Intern program's full. Sorry, kid. That kid's one in a million, Nine. But I'm not gonna let you turn him into one of your guinea pigs. Uh, Mia? Now! Ah, now! I put the egg in the box and the box in the basket. Well done, Raz. Well done, Raz. Keep shooting. Here goes nothing! Whoa! Whoa! Oh, wow! No, 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 not again! And what name is that noble lake creature? Linda. Except Maligula? Yes. That's your grandmother. Son, I could never hate you. I only wanted you to be happy, Rasputin. I lost her, Rasputin. I'm 
about to give you, my son. You must take care of it, because it's everything I've got. The only thing I can offer now is everything I've got. Wait to tell you about all the messed up stuff that happened. Oh, I know a lot of it. While you were out, I poked around a bit. Tell me about this lily person. Hey! <laughs> Will you join us, Rasputin? Will you be a psychonaut? Junior Agents of the Psychonauts. Okay, let's be perfectly clear about this. That was the best summer of my whole entire life. Hey, the summer's not over yet. We can hang out for a couple of weeks still. I've taught you everything I can, son. Now, you go show them. Show them all. I graduated the intern program and all, but I'll bet if I snuck in a little extra credit work, that would really irritate Norma. 